Hey everybody, welcome to CreateCast, the show about people who make good. I'm your host, Chase K. Sorry about the long hiatus, it has been a crazy couple of months. I've been traveling all over, visiting family, I was in Nashville for a few weeks, um, but I am finally back in Los Angeles. Um, in fact, I just moved apartments, which is part of the reason for the delays. Regardless, I am back now so you can expect episodes more regularly. This week's episode is with Warren Hewitt, a good friend and colleague who is an incredible producer. He's worked with everyone from Aerosmith to The Fray, and is also the uh, host of the successful YouTube channel Produce Like a Pro, and the educational service, I guess you could call it, of the same name. Uh, Produce Like a Pro is sort of just encouraging people to uh, better their own productions as well as engage with music in more interesting ways. You can find out more about Produce Like a Pro uh, in the links provided either in the show notes or on the CreateCastPod website. And uh, sorry about a couple of audio issues of this episode. We were recording outside at first, and so we had to move in halfway through the episode to avoid some uh, gardening noise. Um, But whatever, it's a really cool interview. Huge thanks to Warren for taking the time, and I hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to Create Cast. We are sitting down with Warren Hewitt, a music producer and a guy I've been working with for a long time. Uh, Warren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, good to see you, mate. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Obviously, you know, people know just from that first sentence, you are not originally from the U.S., so you started... Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> so wh- where did you grow up and, and when did music start? Uh, I grew up in a little village called Crookham Village in Hampshire. Uh, which is um, about 35 miles southeast of London. Uh, That's not true. It's about 35 miles southwest of London, Um, but it's in the southeast of London. So what was the music scene like there when you were growing up, and what what was it like? Actually, remarkably good. Um, It was a tiny little town, a village, but then there was a small town called Fleet, and (laughs) yard work right nearby, but that's fine. Okay. We're sitting outside a long yeah, time. Yeah. Come a long way from uh, Crook and Village. Um, the, uh, it was good because there was a couple of these amazing music stores. Yeah. In my nearest town, there was a, st- a store called Kingfisher Music. And then in a town called Guildford, there was a, uh, a store called Anderton's Music. And these were these two powerhouse music stores. Um, like Anderton's, I've noticed, is still growing and even huger than it was. So what would happen is like, you know, you had London where you had all the big music stores, but then outside of London you had these huge music stores that just drew everybody in. And it created a scene. It really did. I mean, yeah. when I, I used to work as a kid at both of those stores, when I worked at Kingfisher, uh, Queen used to come in and swap in the shop. When I worked at uh, um, uh, Anderton's, Genesis would come in the shop. So these bands were like, they were local. Because everybody hmm. sort of lived in the home counties, you know, outside yeah. of London, we call them. There's counties around there, the Hunt counties. And um, it just had a great atmosphere. So the bands I remember growing up, um, I mean, there were bands, local bands that got successful. There was a band called um, Breathe. They had a number one single in America called Hands to Heaven. They were like a local band. There was, unfortunately, a band called Bross. who were those two brothers. <laughs> they were twins. But they came from my local area as well. There was a lot of, it was a really good music scene. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I think uh, you just talking about those music stores reminds me of even just, I mean, my town growing up. And, and I think really, you know, obviously, you know, before the internet and before people had this instant access all over the world, it's like you would find these hubs of activity. And I, I mean, I know that, you know, just growing up, there was like the acoustic music shop where everyone, like all the all the folksy musicians and all the, you know, the more 
indie musicians would go and they would all just hang out and people would share music and then there exactly. were, you know, like the electric guitar shops or all, you know, the metal heads would go and then, you know, you just sort of find those little spots. So you mentioned, you know, Genesis and Queen and all these other bands. I mean, I'm guessing obviously those are big influences on you musically. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Queen were, were and probably still are, well, probably definitely are still my favorite band. I mean, it's, uh, I, I have, I hold up bands like Queen and obviously the Beatles and, um, you know, Zeppelin, The Stones, all those kind of bands, the reason for me why those bands were so good, and Genesis, why those bands were so successful and so, so ongoing, enduring, I should say, yeah. was because there was more than one writer in the band. You know, these days a band is usually a lead singer who writes some songs, or co-writes with a bunch of writer-producers. But in those days you had, you know, a band like Queen, you had Freddie Mercury obviously wrote great songs. Mm -hmm. You had Brian May, who was like the second biggest writer in the band. You had Roger Taylor who wrote. And then you had John Deacon who wrote like four or five songs. Yeah. Which happened to be You're My Best Friend, I Want to Break Free, I think Spread my, spread Your Wings. I mean, like, he wrote two of their biggest singles. It's incredible. So, you know, a band, a guy like John Deacon could have been the lead, could have been the songwriter in another band. But instead you had, you had this band like Queen where you had Freddie Mercury, incredible a songwriter, Brian May, a songwriter, Walter Taylor. You had four incredible yeah. songwriters in one band. The Beatles, obviously, the same thing. You had John and Paul, and then of course you had George who wrote incredible songs, and even Ringo could throw in a half decent song. So there's, there's, it's, yeah, it. Those bands will always be an influence on me because of that reason. Because you had multiple talents. I mean, obviously, I appreciate when you look at a band, and I won't mention any of the obvious names, but like modern bands, and like, yeah, it's cool when you know maybe. It's great that a musician has a persona or something like that, but to me that's just part of the, the process. You know, you really yeah. need – it's great to have an image and be cool and play a whatever and wear a mask or do some face paint and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, give me a guy that can also sing or at least write as well. And yeah. That's where we move into those untouchable bands. I mean, Pink Floyd, Roger Waters is undeniably talented, the main songwriter in the band. But then, you know, Dave Gilmore wrote comfortably not. Obviously, with Roger Waters' help, but the point is, is like you, you know, and they and they already and their original, you know, their original um, singer and guitar player left the band. So I mean, you had all these multiple talents. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you uh, are were a guitar player, are a guitar player, and you know, you're a producer now. But when you first came to the states, I'm assuming that was mainly you were playing guitar in a band, right? I was actually playing bass in my first. Band. Really? Yeah, because in the '90s. You know, it, I'm a, like a shredding guitar player. I love playing yeah. guitar. Um, in the 90s, nobody wanted shredding guitar players. Yeah. So I just yeah. moved over to bass. So even though I could, you know, play great, I would just dumb it down and play bass. And so when I came over here originally, I, I played bass. But I did in the studio also write the guitar parts and come up with the ideas. But um, live, I was the bass player. And to be honest, it's kind of fun playing live, playing basses. So, you know, it's sort of a transition moving from just being a musician in a band to, you know, producing bands. Tell me a little bit about that, that shift for you. Well, that was actually quite easy because I was always completely fascinated with it. And, and to be honest, the two bands that, for me, when I was a little kid that I loved were Queen and ELI. And both of those bands, are, the music is production masterpieces. And I don't just, I don't just mean layering and tons of stuff. I mean, just unique ways of doing stuff and, you know, with ELO using strings in such a huge way. Um, and uh, we just had a red Admiral butterfly fly. fly. It's, it's a nice thing about sitting outside. Um, and it's just came back around to see you, Joe. <laughs> uh, the, um, 
you know, so these there were these masterful albums, you know, Out of the Blue and Bohem and uh, you know, and Night of the Opera were like these two incredible albums I just yeah. used to obsess about. And I'm talking about when I was little, like little, hmm. like seven, eight, nine years old. I was listening to that kind of music. Hmm. I got really obsessed with music very, very young. My father's a big classical and jazz buff. So for me, I think that I grew up with classical music, jazz, and bands like Queen Nia Lowe, and I think it really kind of raised the bar really stupidly high. So the first thing I would do as a kid is I would take my, my dad gave me a Philips cassette player, like a little tiny cassette player, and then of course they had a Sony stereo. And I used to play my guitar and I'd record the guitar part on, on one, one of the stereos, then put, no, I'd record it on my Philips, and then I'd put it into the stereo and then play that back and then play a guitar part over the top of it. Oh, that's and crazy. And i take that cassette out that I just recorded, put that in the stereo, play again. And, you know, I would do four or five harmony guitar parts trying to be Brian May right. really badly, I might add. But, but you know, I was, I was a little kid, but that was the way that I did multi-track recording. Yeah. Of course, it ended up as 90% hiss and hum, <laughs> but that was, that was my first foray into multi-track recording. Nobody told me how to do that. There wasn't any... Uh, web series on, uh, on recording in yeah. those days, and I just kind of did that. To be honest, I, when I got my first fourth-track cassette player, I kind of was frustrated by it. Hmm. I didn't really think it was that good. And uh, so I ended up, I ended up, um, we have Gardeners Galore here. Um, I ended up, <laughs> I ended up, um, you know, getting a little frustrated with four-track cassette recorders. I remember when the, Tascam, I think it was a 488 came out. They did an 8-track cassette <laughs> player. I think they even moved up as far as 16-track cassette players. Can you believe it? Um, but the world opened up for me, I remember, when I started working with a, a, a little studio in, in England, and they had an MSR 24, which was a Tascam 24-track one, one. And I was just like, oh, the heavens opened up. And that was amazing. Um, from there, when I moved to America, I got into ADATs. That was what, that's what we did in the 90s, the late 90s, everybody was playing that. And that was great. They had their issues, but the sound quality was pretty pretty darn good considering. Um, but honestly, everything changed in the late 90s when I did an album with Dave Jordan. And we did the album on tape in like 98, 99. We did it on tape. And then we transferred everything to Pro Tools and mm. edited the drums um, and comped the vocals and did everything with the overdubs in Pro Tools. And it was just like, that was it. The world changed for me. So like wow. in the late 90s, I started on Pro Tools. So, I mean, you obviously worked with a ton of artists and, you know, everything from artists that you maybe write with or artists that just, you know, bring in all of their own material or, you know, fans that you're involved with. I mean, you know, it, it's a variety of stuff. So I'm always curious when I, when I talk to producers wondering about, obviously, you know, because people know of producers, like they know name producers, but I, I don't think there's really this strong knowledge of what producers exactly do and maybe how much of the producer goes into a recording. So, I mean, when you're working with an artist, how much of the recording is, you know, something is maybe your musical influence and how much are you sort of trying to stay true to their ideas? I mean, you, it's a little bit of a complicated question, but... No, no, I, I totally understand the question. I mean, that is... The, the, you're right. Music, people in, who are not in music have a harder time understanding, say, producers than they would maybe a director. And a producer and a director is a very similar job. And the reason why I use that analogy is because some directors, say, for instance, like Tim Burton, um, if you read his kind of stuff, they 
create sets and costumes and set a scene. And I remember reading once, he goes, he wouldn't know a good script from a bad script. So that's a director there that maybe only, you know, only sort of creates an atmosphere for people yeah. to act. Aesthetic qualities. Yeah. And then there's other guys that are actors turned directors. So they spend most of their time like directing the acting. Mm. And then other people are worried about set design and continuity and scripts and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's the same is true of music. So for a producer, um, especially the old school producers, they may have had one very strong skill set. And that may be... Uh, that may have been getting great performances out of artists, which is a very strong skill set. They may have been, I worked with Jack Douglas um, quite a lot, and one of Jack's biggest skills uh, is, is his ability to make an artist feel comfortable to go in there and perform. And, you know, that's why he's made all these great records like Tours in the Attic and Rocks and Devil Fantasy. Those albums were made on great performances. And then he would hire a great engineer to get great tones, and he would spend his time working with the artist you know, coaching them is a is a is a probably probably uh, brings up the wrong kind of analogy, like it's a sports metaphor or something. But I think that he he allows people to flourish and create great mm. art. Um, these days, for me, I have to do that. I have to make the art feel comfortable. I all have to be succinct. I have to be able to be and I have to be very focused because the budgets aren't. Nobody's spending half a million dollars to make a record anymore, except for maybe Katy Perry. You know, Rihanna or something like that. Most records are not made like that. Even by modern rock bands, they're made for a fraction of that cost. So now it's about focus. It's about how do I get the performance out of you, the artist, the quickest possible way and the best results. Yeah. Um, but it's not about making it feel like it went quickly. It's about not wasting time. Yeah. And so it's always a balance because I. But the thing I've actually found is it's actually easier. It's easier to indulge the artist in their craziest idea than it is to um, dismiss it. Because yeah. if you say to me, Warren, let's try a marimba underwater on this song, you know, um, I can be like, well, we can talk about it for 20 minutes and discuss it and say why it's not. Sometimes it goes on for like an hour. Or yeah. we can get a bucket of water and put a marimba in it and put a microphone in five minutes and say that it did or doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm being silly, but the point is, it's like, I think one of the things that I see with a lot of producers, young and old, is they, they're very um, uh, blinkered. Very, yeah. they, have a, they have their way of doing things. And that is not good because no one artist is the same as another. No yeah. two artists are the same. So it's like you, you need to have the artist feel like they can express themselves and do what they want to do. But then also not make them feel humiliated if you are taking the reins. Because mm. that's another thing. I think a lot of a lot of guys, like, yeah, I play guitar really well. I'm an okay piano player. I play bass really well. I'm an okay drummer. Some songs I play all the instruments on. I produce uh, Amanda Hardy on a few of those songs. I'm the drummer, the bass player, the keyboard player, the background vocalist, the co-writer, the producer, the engineer, the mixer. I'm all of those things. And then with other artists, um, like with you, I was playing a lot of instruments. But then yeah. we had a different drummer come in. We have different drums on different songs. We've yeah. had Steve do keys and things like that. We've done keys ourselves. Yeah. It's it's doing the best thing for the job. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the question of a producer is a big one because I think it allows allows every single guy or girl has their own skill set. But I believe that the strongest skill set for a producer to have is to have a, have a working and a good knowledge of every one of those things. Yeah. Because otherwise. Unless you've got this massive budget where you can be weak in nine, 90% of the areas, which I think a lot of 
guys used to be. They could be like really good at hanging out, making the artists feel comfortable. But then they were playing a whole bunch of other people. This is remarkable, the uh, gardening that decided yeah, yeah. to... It wasn't going when we started. <laughs> it just decided to happen immediately. Yeah. Well, and you know, that, that sort of makes me wonder, is obviously when you were younger and, and you're just recording on your cassette player, like, it, there was a lot of work that went into it. I mean, you had to really work to record and to produce. And, and so, I mean, nowadays the bar for entry is so low. I mean, I'm able to set up a microphone on a patio outside and, and record people, you know, and, and, gar- and, and gardeners. Um, I mean, so with your new sort of produce like a pro stuff, I think there's sort of this education that you're trying to sort of promote and, and sort of... I don't know, when that bar for entry is so low, how can you sort of maintain or, or hope for a quality in new producers? Oh, I think that, I think it's as long as they, as long as they, uh, um, as long as they're aware that um, the most important thing to do um, is be creative, I think we're good. It's all about creativity. And I think that that's, that's kind of where we're at. I think a lot of artists, um, you know, that are becoming producers and producing their own stuff, they get a little caught up in the gear. You know, it's like, I have a lot of equipment because I've been doing this a long time. Okay, we uh, moved inside away from some of the gardeners, but uh, we, were, <laughs> we were talking a little bit about just sort of that bar for entry for, you know, producers sure. now and, and how really, I mean... Anyone can record. I mean, even if it's just their phone, I mean, it's as easy as, you know, just pressing pressing one button. So talking about your Produce Like a Pro and how you're sort of educating new producers and, and just talking about maintaining quality and and really, you know, trying to focus on the art. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about this. You know why I like doing the Produce Like a Pro thing is I, I came up as an artist, um, you know, as a guitar player and a songwriter and a bass player player, drummer, in that order. <laughs> and I I used to get frustrated going in and working in studios. And, you know, honestly, working with a lot of people that weren't that talented but were making a lot of money, it used to drive me nuts. Because I would be, you know, I'd write a song and I'd be going to the G minor or whatever, you know. And um, the guy would be like, oh, you know, um, yeah, there's some funny chords going on. And it was like, just spent like an hour trying to, you know, Somebody who was name dropping with like fifty big artists, and he wouldn't know what the call sequences were, what yeah. it was, and you know, I what I love about where we're at to answer your question around about where, what I love about where we're at with this technology is that if you are talented and you're a guitar player, a singer, a writer, a keyboard player, you're an EDM guy, whatever it is, if you are now, you can make music, and you can make music great. And I, with Produce Like a Pro, want to show you how easy it really is if you just put your creativity first and don't worry about the gear and the equipment and the this and the that. I'm trying to let people know, you know, that, yes, there's learning curves, but don't get too worried about every single thing because that sort of becomes an emotional crutch mm-hmm. and stops us from being creative. And honestly, I don't have a problem with the fact that a lot of people in the music industry or the film industry or this are working that aren't talented. It's been very difficult because, you, you know, now you have to have a skill set. You can't just be the guy that goes, cool, I dig the vibe. I've worked with guys as, as, a, as an artist. The producer sat in the back of the room and said, I dig the vibe, <laughs> like three times a day. 
And I have no idea at the end of the record why he yeah. paid seventy thousand dollars. You you know, it's funny what you're saying about just you know focusing on the actual music and maybe not the equipment because I mean I started out on electric guitar. And not not acoustic even, and and so I think every electric guitar player goes through that period of you know like oh well, I've got to have every overdrive pedal and I've got to you know have all of these different things and you know thinking about oh what well, what type of strings does this you know specific guitarist use what pedals is he using whatever and it was really you know not until I started to just you know think about my own sound and really you know move away from you know trying to say well regardless of what I'm using what what guitar I'm playing it's going to sound like me you know right um and and I think that's in a really unique way, sort of true and just, you know, obviously your aesthetic as a producer, regardless of who the artist is, comes through on a recording. But, um, man, I, I think that's, you know, going to be a good place to close. So uh, if you have any maybe final words for anyone who, who wants to, who's interested in producing and, and obviously uh, where uh, people can go to find out more about your music, you and, and produce like a pro. Yeah, no, I mean, I love what you just said there. That's, that, that's really apt because... It is. I, I feel like I just did a, a video this morning where I plugged in, um, a, you know, a guitar and played a funk guitar riff over a generic hip hop beat or pop rock beat or whatever they wanted to call it in expand, played a bass line, did the whole thing. The video is going to be probably 12 minutes long and there's like a one minute song. It's quickly written. And I wasn't trying to show off. I was just saying, look, it's so easy. Here's a generic funk riff. Here's a this, there's that twisted up a little bit. And like, here's a great idea that can work. Yeah. And I, I think. I love that the barriers have come down. It's really wonderful. And the thing about Produce Like a Pro is I want to propagate that idea of the barriers coming down. Because honestly, my story is this. My story is, is I didn't go to music school. I did not go to engineering school. I did not start in a studio system. I was never anybody's assistant. All I've done is be like you, like you're doing. Just do this schnizzle on my own. I've always ever done that. I've got hired by people because they needed me in help to, in, to make the records good. Mm. I didn't, I've never been on, never been like an A-list guy that they just call because I take them out for dinner. I've never been a very good schmoozing. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't network very well. I just work my ass off. And I think that there is now, I do believe that the internet and the way the world is is, is much more beneficial for artists. You know, I don't, mean, don't think that you're just going to put a song up and suddenly download 10 million copies, but I do think that the right hustle the right work ethic, the right social media skills and stuff that you can get yourself out there. You can get your songs into film and TV licensing. There's a lot of different opportunities that were never available to artists before because yeah. there was this sort of echelon of guys all slapping each other on the back, you know, cashing huge checks for basically having a Rolodex. Yeah. Now it's a different world, and that's good. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to encourage artists to sort of work together to see... You know, to be creative because we are the new music industry, you know. And Spotify, embrace it. Apple, embrace what they're doing. Because once everybody in the planet has, you know, a Spotify slash Apple, you know, has the ability to stream music, the earnings will go from, you know, oh, I only made $100 last quarter to making thousands of quarters. So in the moment, we're just scratching the surface. But streaming is the future. I have an eight-year-old son and an eight-month baby girl, and I don't think either of them have bought or will buy music in the traditional sense. Mm. They don't grow up in a culture where buying CDs or vinyl or cassettes or whatever exists anymore. Yeah. So we need to embrace streaming and realize that we are the new music industry. Me and all you young kids, um, and all you youngsters like yeah. you. <laughs>
Man, well, uh, this has been a really cool interview, and I appreciate you taking the time. Let's do another one. I like these. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Once again, a huge thanks to Warren for coming on the show. Um, It feels really good to be back recording, and I can't wait for you guys to hear some of the other cool guests I have lined up. Um, As always, make sure you visit us at createcastpod.com or leave us a rating or review in the iTunes store. Just search CreateCast. And for more information about Warren and the Produce Like a Pro, just check out the show notes or find his YouTube channel. You can just search Produce Like a Pro. And here's one final word from Warren himself. Hi, this is Warren Hewitt reminding you to make good.